AI has wonderful uses. Just one example in uh, looking at corneal problems in the eye because you can photograph microseconds to see changes and AI can whip through those changes where if you're looking through 20,000 bits of x-ray you just wouldn't wonderful use of AI but when it's used as a substitute for your own creativity you're just going to be a, a mechanism a machine so the great danger is not that robots become more human, it's that humans become robot-like. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking with Dr. Eddie Billy Moria. Dr. Billy Moria was born in India and educated at the universities of London, Sussex and Oxford. He presents an unusual blend of experience in the fields of science, arts and philosophy. Professionally, Eddie is an award-winning engineer and consultant to the petrochemical, oil and gas, transport and construction industries. He has been project manager and head of design for major innovative projects such as the Channel Tunnel, London Underground Systems, petrochemical plants and offshore installations. He also worked in safety and environmental engineering for several Royal Navy projects. A study of the perennial philosophy for over half a century, Eddie has given courses and lectured extensively in the UK and internationally. He has organised and chaired conferences with the object of encouraging discourse on the different but overlapping roles of science, religion and practical philosophy. Eddie has published extensively in the fields of science, engineering and esoteric philosophy. He is the author of the award-winning book, The Snake and the Rope and his latest four-volume work, Unfolding Consciousness, has received recognition with the 2022 Grand Prize Award from the Science and Medical Network. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter, and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. And now here are Paul and Eddie talking about the love beyond ideas. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, our title is The Conscious Love Beyond Concepts. With a guest I'm super excited to share with all of you because Eddie Billamorea is an amazing man, a real gem of, of absolute wisdom and tremendous life experience and knowledge who has produced one of the most incredible, if not the most incredible, four-volume set of books on consciousness I've ever studied in my life. And I know any of you that listens to the podcast know I have a lot of books, and I've studied consciousness extensively. Eddie's four-volume set is called Unfolding Consciousness, Exploring the Living Universe and Intelligent Powers in Nature and Human Beings. And one of the things I love about Eddie's set is he is as scientific as he is spiritual, religious. It's a very holistic, integrated series of books that is the most complete collection of the most important works that highlights the perennial philosophy, the common binding factors of all the ancient spiritual development traditions and religions into one incredible set. So if you ever want to get one set of books that will teach you more about God, love, religion, life, spiritual development, and consciousness, then probably a whole library of books. This is it. And here's what 
one of the books looks like. They're beautifully published. They're very well laid out, extremely thorough. In fact, I've gone through with Penny and modeled a lot of my new book layout based on the design of Eddie's because it's so absolutely awesome. So Eddie, what a pleasure to have you here with me on the podcast today. And thank you for joining us. Paul, it's not only my pleasure, but it's a real privilege and an honor. And I mean that. It is wonderful to be talking. We've spoken before. And it's so nice to be talking to, how can I put it, a resonant soul. Thank you. We are like musical instruments. We're playing <laughs> yeah. the same tune because that would be boring. But yeah. we are creating harmony. So thank you, Paul, very much. Yes, thank you. I'm so excited to, to share you, your books, and your wisdom. I think this might be one of the most important podcasts I've ever done. And for the listeners, we, Eddie and I have outlined uh, you know, several pages of key uh, discussion points and questions I've got for him. And he's been happy to agree to do more podcasts. So we're not going to try to rush through this because this is mm -hmm. extremely important information for all of us to really deeply understand, especially with what's going on in the world right now. So we're going to take you on a journey that's really based on Eddie's four-volume set. And he's going to expand and educate us. And we'll probably dialogue here and there. But just know that at the end of the podcast, if you're craving more, don't worry. because I'm going to let Eddie give us as much as he's willing to give because I've never felt this information was more important than, than it is right now with the issues of the world. So, Eddie, to begin with, what inspired you to write your four-volume set, Unfolding Consciousness, Exploring the Universe and Intelligent Powers in Nature and Humans? Because uh, it's such a big undertaking. I mean, I've written, I've written 11 books. I'm on my... 12th now, which will be a four-volume set as well. I know all about how hard it is to write a book, how much work it is. When I go through your books, I'm like, wow, this guy has put a tremendous amount of work into these books. In one word, love, and I mean that. And, yes. Uh, unconditional love in order to share and pass on, because if you've experienced something and you keep it to yourself, it's a bit selfish, <laughs> and you don't deserve more. So it's really an unconditional passing on of what I've experienced, and for heaven's sake, I'm only one human being on a planet with lots of unique individuals. And I've been very fortunate in having um, been inspired by a lot of great people and great books. So the overriding inspiration is in the same way paul as a composer writes a piece of music the greatest works of music were written and only discovered years later like schubert's ninth symphony like uh, you know some of bach's music it was mm. just the outpouring but on a more practical level and we always always have to balance the ideal with the practical head in the heavens and feet on earth. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been working in science and engineering all my life, and I deeply and sincerely honor and respect what science has given the world. But there are huge holes and huge areas that science just cannot touch. 
and which the greatest of scientists have identified and spoken about, but the corpus of science, mainstream science, hardly takes any notice of that. So one an, another reason is to fulfill the deficit that mainstream science has not been able to give us. And the, the, the greatest love has been um, the perennial philosophy. I've been um, a member of the Theosophical Society for well, half a century almost, and it's to show how the wisdom streams from all epochs and all cultures, all ages, when taken to their source, they speak with one voice but many tongues, so to speak, and um, to show how by accessing that universal font of knowledge and wisdom, there's so many problems in the world that could be intelligently resolved. Yes, beautiful. The, the religions are in a moribund state, and I feel that by elevating the status of religion in the true sense of the word, there would be a great healing, a healing of the world, because the great religious teachers from wherever they came, they came to heal, to unite. They didn't come to divide. They have taken what they said and argued over it. And I can give you an example. Just take an orchestra. The brass and the strings don't argue, is my bit of music better than yours? You know, we are playing different uh, scores, but the music is one, the conductor is one, the composer is one. Now, why is it that the musicians don't argue and fight over, am I superior to you? Is my instrument better than yours? No, we play our different instruments uniquely together. Now, why don't musicians fight? Because they hear the actual music. They're living the actual music. The trouble with religions is we live in concepts. We argue and fight over concepts. If we could touch whatever you like to call it, God is an overloaded term. If we could touch the divine consciousness, the feeling of unity, the feeling of oneness, the feeling of complete inspiration, we wouldn't be arguing over concepts. It would be an experience that we could share. And that's the cent one of the central problems. The religious wars are over concepts. They're not over experience. The Buddha did not get a doctorate in theology. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> an experience. Jesus the Christ did not go to, as Rupert Sheldrake once said, he, did, he didn't go to a rabbinical college. He had an experience. So he was talking from inner experience. But when people listen, then they turn it into a concept and then fight over it. In other words, the fight is over the map, not the territory. What's cool too, Eddie, is uh, the, the listeners don't know, but you are a musician. Yes, music has been the absolute love of my life. It's, oh gosh, <laughs> it, 
even before I was one year old, I'm told, my parents could only keep me quiet by playing um, gramophone records, the old 78 records you had to wind up and yeah, <laughs> Café Mozart waltz then and uh, Heifetz playing uh, Schubert's Ave Maria. So I've been playing the piano all my life. I sing in the choir, uh, sung in a couple of very famous choirs. I try and practice about two hours a day. But the, the music is, as Beethoven put it, and I'm not just quoting it, I mean, music provides the interface, the connection between the world of spirit and the sensual world. It is a conduit. It is Beautiful. a divine channel. And this is why, Paul, you can hear the same great piece of music every day and it still reveals new insights. It does, yes. I, I, I agree totally. And it's the same with a great book. With a great book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, to, just to expand on that a little, when we look at the Hindu concept of Om, hmm. it is the equivalent of the word in the Bible. And basically what that says is that God sings this all into existence. And therefore, it's yeah. it's music. That is music to my ears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because what you have done is shown the unity between East and West. You have shown yes. what I think when we last spoke, I said that all the sages have dipped their pens into the same inkwell of wisdom. They've written in their different handwriting. That was my wonderful aunt's uh, message to me. So, Om is the word. In the beginning, there was the word, the vibration, that which caused movement, that which caused the first flutter. And then that movement being subjective, in order to become objective, then there was light. So Om, it's also spelled A-U-M, as you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, A-U-M underscore. Yeah, A-U-M. And the significance of that, is, uh, as you undoubtedly know, Paul, but just for, you know, listeners, the uh, it is likened to the swan or the goose, where the A and the M are the wings mm. that carry the body. The wings are of time. But what it carries is the timeless. The timeless Beautiful. carried on the wings of time is one way of looking at it. I love Joseph Campbell's breakdown of the meaning of Om as A, ah, I awaken, ooh, I'm dreaming, I'm, I'm living my dream, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm falling asleep, underscore, cycle begins again. And so in my new book, I show that Ohm is really the underlying cycle that contains every possible cycle within it. It's, it's the overarching nest within which all life is, is nested, right? Is nested and subsumed. And in the Kabbalah, you've got Ein, Ein Sof, and Ein Sof Ur. Ein, the deity in repose, Ein Sof deity emanating, Ein Sof Ur, the boundless light. But, you know, the hermetic axiom 
Paul, as above, so below. As the deity does, we do. We repose, we awaken, we act. So the same process is reflected in us. And 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 I'm going to throw a a, a point on the table that, that isn't isn't in our outline, but you've set it up perfectly. There is a a real split in anyone that's either religious or spiritual. And on one side is this belief that God does not evolve, that somehow God is external to creation, perfect and never changing. But then there's others like myself that believe that just as you said, as above, so below. So if we're evolving and we're learning and we're growing, then God's awareness of its own creativity and its own potential must also be evolving or as above, so below is in that it doesn't make sense. So I'd love to hear your thoughts because this is a, a very deep philosophical and religious and spiritual concept that gets bantered around. But unfortunately, like you said, it gets bantered around as an idea, like as a philosophical a concept. concept. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but not a lived experience. And I've meditated very deeply on these concepts through my soul's guidance. And my soul has repeatedly told me, if you learn something new, God learns something new through you. Because though God may be absolute, the absolute can only be the absolute because it has the relative to check itself against. Otherwise, there's no meaning to the absolute. It would be a nonsensical concept and that in the middle of that is what is sometimes referred to as the pivot of the Tao, which I call the zero force, but people are so narrow in their imagination that I, I say, look, what could you create if you had infinite power, infinite processing speed and infinite intelligence? Well, the answer would be anything. Anything that could be conceived of or dreamed of could be created. And since that which is above can only, if God is all-knowing, then God can only evaluate its knowing through experience. And I think that's the necessity. The absolute is the all-knowing, but the relative is where it evaluates itself at the speed of now. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. In terms of a very simplistic electrical analogy, you've got to earth the circuit. So there would not be the divine current if there weren't an earthing process, the reflection and the projection of the divine impulse through man and all creatures, great and small, of course. Um, this perfectibility is an ideal, so to speak, but unfortunately it's been frozen into a again into a concept so god is perfect but that completely divorces the uh, the connection between deity and its um, its creation embodiment yeah. yeah so again the you know one of the the finest uh, quotations that i that comes to mind is by schiller uh, the great Schiller, who Beethoven immortalized, of course, in the Ode, uh, Ode to Joy. But Schiller said that the, the universe is a thought of the deity, 
And since that ideal thought form has, so to speak, overflowed into actuality, then the world born from that must realize the plan of its creator. And therefore, it's our business of, as intelligent beings to dis rediscover in the existent whole the original design. Now, by original design, I don't mean in a fundamentalist sense, God's the original design, and that's it, you know, right. end of design. It's a process. It's a process of emanation, uh, radiation and emanation. It's, it's a flowing. So there is the, the, the seed of perfectibility in the absolute, but that doesn't mean it's on there, uh, sort of out in the cold doing its own thing. It's engaging because it's overflowed into actuality. It's engaging with its yes. expressions. And that overflowing into actuality, I've med thought about it so much more recently. It really is an act of love. It is love. Because when you love, you express. You overflow, so to speak. Yes. And love has its laws. If you hurt who or whatever you love, you will pay the price. And this is, unfortunately, the, our common human lot. We hurt and injure what we should love. Yes, and, and speaking of the laws of love, I, I teach everybody that I work with in my as patients, clients, and students that one thing we should always remember is that love is a boomerang. Yes. Whatever we put out comes back to us. And, you know, the way I explain that to my students is that I use Blaise Pascal's sort of definition of God, which has been manipulated various times over the years, but basically God is a sphere whose circumference is nowhere and a center whose presence is everywhere. Everywhere. Yes. Yeah, so that's a, one of the finest. How I explain love as a boomerang is I say, look, you are a center. You are a center of consciousness. You have a unique presence, a unique self. And therefore, because God is a sphere whose circumference is everywhere or nowhere, you are a center whose presence is everywhere, which means paradoxically, every one of us, by definition, is the center of the universe. True. Yes. And therefore, when you throw the boomerang of love, it has to come back to you because you're the center from which it emerged from. And the boomerang of hate, unfortunately. Right. Yes. Yeah. Which is really just, which is what it really, to me, a crude expression of love, like a child who doesn't know any better and gets mad at its mommy and says, I hate you or you know, it's just really like an infantile expression yeah, of, of yeah, love. Yeah, that's quite, yeah. But when it's calculated hate, then it's a very different matter than just uh, an impulsive outpouring of anger, you know. Right. Yes, when it's calculated, now we're talking about something that's antagonistic to life, which we call evil. Hello, everybody. March is the final month for the next intake of Czech Academy students. Your applications will be accepted until the last day of March. 
Czech Institute CEO Gavin Jennings and I created the Czech Academy to provide a multidisciplinary integrated learning and teaching system for the mastery of holistic health. The Czech Academy teaches each student how to assess each client physically, emotionally, and mentally, and develop a program that supports them in achieving their dream. You not only learn the essentials of diet and lifestyle modification, but how to design corrective and high-performance exercise programs scientifically. As I suspect you are all aware, there has never been a bigger need for truly holistic health professionals than there is today, so why not learn to master your own health and well-being and make a great living helping others create health, freedom, and live their dreams? The Czech Academy offers anyone genuinely interested in learning, practicing, and teaching holistic health principles and practices as an approach. The Czech Academy is ideal for anyone genuinely interested in learning, practicing, and teaching holistic health principles and practices. The Czech Academy is ideal for exercise professionals, allied medical professionals, therapists, or doctors interested in mastering the core principles of holistic health. You will learn all the assessment methods, program design skills, coaching, and behavioral change skills needed to enhance your existing practice or start in a fresh holistic health career. Czech Academy students are taught by the most skilled holistic health professionals in the world and supported by mentors and student forums. Scholarships are available, so apply now. We have one scholarship per region. We have the North America region, the South Pacific region, and the UK Europe region. Applications are welcome from new students and existing students within the Czech education system that are ready to join the academy and achieve mastery. To register for the Czech Academy, go to chekacademy.com. Once again, to register for the Czech Academy, go to chekacademy.com. We look forward to receiving your application by the last day of March. If we work together, we can bring real healing to the world. Paul, um, since we talk, you've just used this word. Yeah, please expand. This good evil thing that you know people obviously get very uh, upset and confused by. Let's just again, if I may, yeah, if I please, may. Uh, yes, yeah, oh yeah. yes, yeah. You know, uh, I want yeah. it to flow on its own. So yeah, sure. I'm not going to hold to a to a bound concept. You know, the the outline is just the dream. But spirit's going to give us the reality. So yeah, sure. take it wherever wherever your heart goes. Let us go. So if the the universe then is a thought of the deity, which is outflowed into reality, which is an outpouring of love, and we transgress those laws of love, we're going to pay a price. The you know the great Paul Brunton in uh, his. Uh, one of his early books in search of secret Egypt, he had mm-hmm. this seminal saying, um, it was not the creator because people think God punished you. God did this, you know, right. God didn't, God didn't. The saying is, it was not the creator that caused all the destruction or whatever, but when man looks upon man with hate, he is destroyed by his own iniquities the creator loves all but when man looks upon man with hate he is destroyed by his own iniquities in other words love has its laws as i said earlier if you injure the person you love you will pay the price why shouldn't love have its laws we have the law of gravity 
if you jump off the top of a ladder and you get hurt, you don't say, oh, well, gravity is an evil force, do you? If you unfortunately burn yourself, you don't say fire is evil. It's your own stupidity or lack of intelligence. Right. Now, let's just take this one step further. One of the greatest pianists, uh, she lived to the age of 109, was called Alice Summers. And she was taken to the uh, Terezin concentration camp by the Nazis, she and her husband and her little child. And because of her superb performances in that ghastly ghetto, her life was spared. Beautiful. But when she was parted from her husband, his life wasn't spared. Her, She and her son, their lives were spared from being deported to Auschwitz. Her husband, Leopold, said to her, I want you to teach our little son never to hate anyone. Now, Paul, it brings tears to my eyes to think about this. Who has heard of Leopold Summers? He hasn't got a Nobel Peace Prize or anything, but that was a great man because he realized that it was hate that was at the bottom of it all. I want you to teach my son never to hate anyone. And when a man says this before going to Auschwitz, God, you got to get down on your knees and worship him. Yes, that's a very evolved human being. Very evolved. And Paul, there are many evolved human beings. Who's heard of them? Just because he got riches and all. But just the ending of this story is that um, his wife, uh, she came to England uh, and her one of her sayings was, yes, I was born a Jew and I'm Jewish, but my religion is Beethoven. I love it. <laughs> and what did Beethoven say in his notebooks? I quote, hate only reacts upon those who nourish it. Yes. Another evolved great human being who saw what was happening. He lived in Napoleonic times, of course, Beethoven. Right. Well, you know, because of what we just discussed with Blaise Pascal's example of God, it's. I think it's true that we must each take responsibility for our own creations, and that is our moral responsibility. So if we're acting evil, the boomerang comes back and we have yes, to take does. responsibility for, for what we create. So I think, you know, my studies of evil have shown me that evil is like the force of yin gone wild and it wants to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and control and accumulate. But if you take that process to its end point, it leads to complete and utter isolation. Yeah. It completely sent to people. You, you, you basically smolder and control, and then you find yourself completely alone. And even my studies of the law of one by Ra, Ra says most evil entities cannot make it past the fifth dimension because they come into this point of realizing that they've isolated themselves, and they at that point realize that their only salvation is God. 
And so to get to the sixth dimension, they have to become loving or they cannot evolve anymore. And they'll just keep reincarnating back into the same Milu they keep creating. So evil basically has a, a, a full stop at the end of it. But love is infinite. It, there is no ending. That is beautifully put, Paul. I never thought of that. Evil has a full stop. It does not even have a semicolon. <laughs> no, it's, it just comes to a dead stop. So now what do you, you got? It disintegrates. Yeah, you've conquered the whole world. What, what next? Now you're all alone, yeah. right? And that's sad. Yeah. Eddie, if there was a central message that you wish to convey to your readers through your, your four-volume set, Unfolding Consciousness, how would you describe that? Oh, my goodness. Um, I would say that the, the, the principal theme, the principal message, is to show that the universal wisdom tradition, the perennial philosophy, and the demonstration and corroboration of it by much of enlightened science broadens and contextualizes mainstream science beyond its existing metaphysical constraints. And in this way, the intractable problems and conundrums we face these days concerning the deeper issues of consciousness and life can be faced squarely and resolved. Yes. So it is plugging the gap that science cannot plug for example, uh, as foreseen by Paul um, Carl Jung, uh, yes, in Modern Man in Search of a Soul, beautiful by Paul book, Brunton, the spiritual crisis of modern man, and the sad thing, Paul, is that the greatest of scientists have seen this and have openly spoken about it, but no one takes any notice. Max Planck, Erwin Schrödinger. Albert Einstein. I mean, go back to Newton and others, of course, but you know, the, the snobs of mainstream science will say, oh, well, that's in the past. Well, talk about the present. Sir Karl Popper. Irvin Laszlo. Irvin, Irvin Laszlo. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. A very good example. Last time I showed you <laughs> the, I think I did, the Akasha book by Irvin Laszlo. Uh, yes, I have that book. I've read it. It's a fantastic book. The, it's very lucid, a fantastic book. So Another pianist. And, and he was a pianist, yes. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Dean Radin was a violinist, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Schrodinger's words, I'm very disappointed. I know I'm astonished about how deficient science is because it provides a wonderful construction and puts everything in a nice, magnificent order, but it is ghastly science, ghastly silent on everything that is dear to our hearts. So in, in essence, what Schrodinger is saying, which is what the perennial philosophy is providing the, de the, the, the answer, as Schrodinger said, science can indeed tell us how the airwaves strike our ears as they are now when we're talking, <laughs> and a certain electrochemical neurological process goes through the brain. Yes, good. But why? Why does an old song move us to tears? 
science can't tell us that. But I say we're deeply grateful to science because if you're hard of hearing and you need um, hearing aids, well, you need to think about airwaves and neurological processes. So we're not knocking science. This is the whole point. We're trying to raise it to a higher perspective. We're trying to raise science to a higher metaphysic. I think, too, we're, it's, science has excluded the subjective, which is the realm of feeling. It's the realm in which love is really at home. Here, so here. I, think, I think what you're really offering, you know, having read enough of your books, I think you're really bringing, as Dr. Ibrahim Karim, the founder of Biogeometry, is, is bringing the subjective back in and putting it into science so that there is feeling, which, which helps bring back the morality that's fallen out of science. And I think we have to get the subjective and the moral back into science before we use science to destroy ourselves. Desperately. And who put it more beautifully than the great Max Planck, the founding father of quantum physics or quantum mechanics, as it was called then, that science will never solve the ultimate mystery of nature until the scientist himself, I'm paraphrasing, is brought into the picture. You cannot look at nature detachedly. So insofar as scientific, in scientific research, the science leaves himself out of the picture, if the quality of the scientist doing the research is irrelevant, his morality or lack of it, he will never get the full picture. Whereas the spiritual seeker doesn't look by, through a detachment, but participation. And again, John Wheeler from Princeton University, he, his words were, paraphrasing, gone are the days when we look at phenomena through a thick glass wall. Right. Participation is the new word in science. So a very simplistic example, if I want to know my neighbor in the scientific way, I drag him in, cut him up into bits and pieces, weigh his various organs and, you know, all the rest of it. I'm not finding out about the person. I'm finding out about the body. If I want to know my neighbor, I participate with him. I have tea with him. I have a conversation with him. If something yes. is wrong with his body, we applaud science for putting the body right. No, hang up, no problem with that. But the body is not the person. The person expresses through the body. Participation. So participation is very definitely the way of the alchemist, the esotericist, the occultist, who really has to participate participate in nature's processes in order to be one with nature. It's not I'm looking, as Einstein himself admitted, well, why admit, say it, you know, he really felt gravity in his bones. He wasn't looking at gravity out there. He felt it. He was gravity. He was light in his subjective being. So the subjective, as you so rightly say, Paul, has got to be brought into the equation because that will restore morality. It will provide a 
compass point. But because you can't quantify subjectivity and quantification is, you know, it's almost a religion in mainstream science, they keep it out of the way. Yes. But experience is subjective. You cannot deny experience, even though you can't measure it. Right. There is this great tendency to objectify things. Here is a beautiful paperweight I got from Australia. It's an object. You can put this in a box. A rainbow, you can't put a rainbow in a box because it's not an object. It's a phenomena, the uh, the interplay of light and the human eyes. So if you... If you go up in a balloon, you won't touch a rainbow, you'll touch water droplets. <laughs> the subjectivity is more to do with phenomena than objectivity. Yes, and, and even the epiphenomenon of, yes. of the interaction, <laughs> right? You, you, you don't have water until you have hydrogen connected to two parts of oxygen. In other words, you take those apart, you don't have wet anymore. You have chemicals, but you put those two together. And you have this epiphenomenon of wetness. And I think that the subjective and the objective produce the epiphenomenon of life itself. The, yeah. the, the feeling and the thinking and the um, intuiting that we experience in our physical body. But those are the, just like you have the orchestra, which is the product that emerges from the marriage of the instruments in tune with each other, when we have consciousness interacting with the elements that make the body, it creates this music. And science is basically saying the only thing that's real is the body, ignore the music. And I think that's just a, a real big mistake. Yes, there's a lovely uh, story connected with that, a real story. But just coming back to hydrogen and oxygen, you quite rightly use the word connection it's not just hydrogen and two atoms of oxygen because as Blavatsky put it so beautifully if water is just hydrogen and oxygen try squirting hydrogen and oxygen onto a raging fire right <laughs> it won't do anything no but now you you mentioned um you know the the, the body and the, the, the instrument. There's a lovely story of uh, the great uh, violinist Joshua Heifetz uh, arriving at the airport in Tel Aviv and the taxi driver said, Mr. Heifetz, your violin produces such beautiful sounds. And Heifetz, so the story goes, he, he took it out of his case and he tapped it. <laughs> Does it produce such beautiful sounds? Hey, what about me, the violinist? Right. So now, as Paul Brunton said, if the brain produces consciousness and thought, then just the wood and the strings of the violin on their own produce music. Right. That's a long thing to wait for. <laughs> yeah. You know, that. have you ever studied any of Kabir's writings? A, a long, long time ago, he was a great mystic as well. Yeah, I studied him a lot. Kabir has, in one of his lines, in one of his poems, he's describing God and and how we can't know God without a relationship. And he says, "God is like a trumpet. 
waiting patiently on the shelf for you to blow him. (laughs) (laughs) And there it is, right? You have to, you have to participate, right? Reading about a trumpet isn't blowing the trumpet. Reading about how you play the piano is not going to play the piano or play, help you play. Yeah. Which is why Rumi said to get to God, you must become a heretic. You you know, you're not going to find God in books. You have to be brave enough to have your own experience. And as soon as you tell anybody about your experience, it's going to be heretical because it's not going to be the book. It's going to be a unique experience. And I think that's one of the dangers of religion. You've got to make yourself God-like or make yourself enlightenment prone, prone to enlightenment. (laughs) Yes. If there is a purpose to writing these volumes for you, Eddie, what was your purpose? To clarify. And you did a great job, (laughs) I must say. Thank you. To clarify a lot of the confusion in three areas. Firstly, in science, and I'll tell you what I mean by science first, uh, then. Also in religion, but also in esotericism where there are pockets of opinion, where each one thinks my guru, my book, my this is the greatest. So the same sectarian approach we find in religion, we find in esoteric circles. But now, look, by science, the words get in the way. There's science with a very small S and science with a capital S. For me, Paul, everything is a science. There is a science of love, a science of yoga, a science of investigating matter. It means schiere is the what the word science comes from, to know, to explore, to investigate. But scientism is a very different matter. Yes, isms are always dangerous. The triple purpose that flowed out of the <laughs> the love of writing it was to clarify uh, confusion in science, in religion, and in esotericism. It was beautiful. How would you describe the approach that you adopted in producing this four-volume set? The approach, in general, was to start top-down, because starting from universals to the particular. So the method is generally going, but not exclusively, I mean, bottom-up is as important, but as an overriding method, it is top-down. It is first arguing towards the necessity of the perennial philosophy, then showing how so many of the tenets of the, the philosophy has been verified and corroborated through modern science. And therefore, science is very much the ally. Enlightened science is the ally of the perennial philosophy. The the approach is the perennial philosophy, the method, the evidence, and using science in its right place to corroborate it, whilst never forgetting the role of art and music, because... Uh, some of the greatest insights have come from musicians and poets. Absolutely. There's no more, for me, more beautiful um, saying than the great Franz Liszt, 
about the slow lingering death of Chopin. You know, Chopin died of, of tuberculosis. And again, and I paraphrase, and Liszt in his book on Chopin said, plagues that ravage cities, fires that burn forests, none of these hold our attention more than the sight of an advanced soul contemplating the nature of time at the door of eternity. Yeah, that'll take you somewhere. So here was a, not only a great composer, but a great philosopher who understood that death is transition. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show. I imagine you know that magnesium is one of the minerals that people in North America are the most efficient in, but it's an extremely important mineral to have in your diet regularly. And believe it or not, Bioptimizers has improved what was already well known to be the best magnesium formula out there called Magnesium Breakthrough. So I've got Wade Lightheart with me to explain what it is they've done to improve this already excellent formula. Wade, what is new about your new Mag Breakthrough formula? Well, it's called sucrosomial magnesium. So we have seven different types of magnesium in Magnesium Breakthrough because they're uptaken by different parts of the body. But a new type of magnesium has been created called sucrosomial. And what it shows in the research and science is that it's actually even more absorbable by the body, particularly inside of the brain, which is a big aspect uh, to enhance neurotransmitter formation, as well as ensuring the rest and relax response in the nervous system that a lot of people will take magnesium for. They find it, you know, clocks them down, helps them sleep better, allows for the relaxation of striated and smooth muscle tissue in the body, which creates an energetic relief. And so when we added sucrosomial, we were able to demonstrate inside our lab facility that we were able to get better improvements. Of course, we have a partnership with the Birch International University. We have some patents we're working on, uh, which will kind of relay some of these things. But sucrosomial was a no-brainer when we added to the formula, improved the results or improved the uptake. And the reports back from our testing team were like, wow, this we get more results with less caps. And that's always the goal for our company. That's excellent. I love it. I, I always say, and people have probably heard me say it before, I just am so amazed how you guys are constantly and always improving and working your best to not only make better products for us, but it doesn't seem to me that it gets more expensive as you make them better. So that's a real gift to the world. Thank you. This month, Bioptimizers have a special gift with purchase offer. When you buy a three-month supply of Magnesium Breakthrough, you not only save 25%, you also get a free gift of a bottle of Masszymes and a bottle of P3OM. And when you purchase a five-month supply of Magnesium Breakthrough, you save 30% and get free bottles of Masszymes, P3OM, and HLC. An incredible offer no matter how you slice it. To take advantage of this special offer now, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash living 4D. That's magbreakthrough.com forward slash living 4D. Enjoy. What would you consider, Eddie, to be the unique features in your books that set it apart from numerous other books on consciousness and the current body-mind field? Because, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Your, your books are, your books are, they're, they're very unique. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not like any of the other books I've ever read. One of the things that I would 
want to say real quick is that I could take almost any page or two out of your book, capture something, be it Hindu conceptions or alchemist conceptions, and one who studies just that conception, which you could study the Upanishads for years or the Vedas or any of these things, you could go down a very narrow uh, lane compared to the whole that you've presented. And you could end up not realizing that you've programmed yourself into a specific view. Yes. But what I, what I found is, is your books are like a 360 degree view of these issues. It's like I'm standing in the middle of a circle Whereas a lot of them are like mirrors where you're facing a flat pane. It's Hinduism or Christianity or Islam. But you know, Paul, I've, I've never heard yours as a sphere. More, more eloquently, and I really mean it most sincerely. I, I like the way you put it, standing in the middle of a circle. Yeah. So you're asking me the unique features. Well, the central message, of course, is to show that the universe, man, every particle of nature, <laughs> is guided by intelligence at all levels and nature is anything but blind and mechanical but in order to do that the uh, if you ask for unique features i would say it's to show how science religion philosophy art all of these streams are like the various colors that have come from a prism and we'll talk about the prism but how all of these streams can be taken back and subsumed in white light, because all colors can be taken back to white light. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, pointing to their source, pointing to their source. The, the second unique feature, as you kindly put it, is the universality of the mystery teachings and all the great religions. And to show Rather like my first book, The Snake and the Rope. Which is very good. I got yeah. it at your suggestion. Wow, it's powerful. It's as powerful as these books. Well, <laughs> it's a bit dense as well. I love it. <laughs> I'm dense. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, dense meaning concentrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the third one is to show how these various conundrums in science can be resolved, not solved, resolved through occult science and using the word occult, of course, in the proper sense of the hidden laws of nature. Yes. And only by doing that will we understand what it truly means to be human. And when we truly understand what it means to be human, we can, of course, relate to other human beings. Naturally. And therefore, man is the measure of all things. And also, there is a goal-orientated movement. Evolution isn't just random, so natural selection and mutation. There is a, a movement towards a higher order of being. And that higher order of being, in Rumi's terms, would be... Uh, to evolve through the various kingdoms of nature till you're united with the beloved. But you're united consciously. Mm -hmm. First, you were let out unconsciously, so to speak, but now you are united yes. consciously. And therefore, you can be a, a powerful, infinite force in the world to help other beings to make that journey. 
Yeah, and that reminds me too, because I've I've read quite a number of mystics in my life, and one of the things that various mystics have said that that I've had the experience of through my own spiritual experiences mm -hmm. is that at the moment that we realize God in us, God simultaneously realizes itself in that being. In other words, our conscious awareness of God becomes God's conscious awareness of itself. And that puts man, it makes man fundamental to the process, not just some, you know, side effect. And very responsible for the process. Yes. And I think that's missing in a lot of people's conception that, hmm. you know, it's not just an elective you take in school. Spiritual development is something that when you awaken to the point of what it really is, you see that we have a co-creative relationship with spirit or source in which we realize each other. Would it be a fair analogy? And I really asked the question, uh, it's not a inverted question. Would it be a fair analogy to say that as the child grows, obviously, thanks to its parents, the parent also must grow. Absolutely. It's child. Even though the parent in that relationship is so-called superior. Right. You can't be a parent without growing with your child or you're, no. you're going to have a, <laughs> you're going to have a dysfunctional child out of that Very. one. And the huge problem is this idea of an extrinsic, a God outside who sort of did his thing. And then, you know, we've got all the problems. And then you get these ridiculous statements from high churchmen. And I'm not going to name them. God does not permit wars. I mean, come on. I mean, to say something so banal, no wonder scientists sneer at that god does not permit wars literally almost like this chap up there with a the white beard is saying don't fight yeah religion has not moved on in the way that science has and exactly. that's the tragedy which reminds me of einstein's quote uh science without religion is it's either lame or blind, <laughs> and the yeah, other one. Yeah, he says, he says science without religion is lame, and religion without science is lost. Or blind, blind, or blind. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's yeah. It's, uh, it's really true, you know. It is, and, and you know something, Paul. I've heard people criticizing Einstein for saying that, but they don't realize that Einstein wrote that to a schoolgirl. Of that's beautiful. Roughly age fifteen, so he put it. That in terms that she would understand. But this is the trouble when people take half the thing and then pick it to pieces. He wrote it for a schoolgirl. Yes, well, Einstein also said if you can't teach something to a 12-year-old, you don't understand it well enough yet. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard Einstein teaching general relativity to a 12-year-old. But, <laughs> but he did, Einstein did give a good example of the relativity of time, you know, when he said, uh, uh, if you sit on a hot stove, one minute feels like one hour. But if a man talks to a pretty girl, one hour seems like a minute. One minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. a 12 year old would get that. Yeah. What, well, if you could. Now, we've talked a fair bit about it, so if you feel you've already covered this, we can 
move forward, but what do you feel the basic truths that you wish to convey in your unfolding consciousness series are if you synthesized it down? You mean what's the sort of the closing message or the or the essence? Yeah, what are what yeah. are the what's the, the essence, the reductio ad absurdum? You know, if I boil it all yeah. down and say what's the core truths Eddie's conveying here? We know yeah. love is certainly one of them. Yeah. But that's far too wide a term and can almost be meaningless. Yeah. Unless you unless you flesh it out. Right. That's a huge question, Paul. Let's just start at the top and then see how we realize this. Firstly, that there is really a benevolent higher power, which is synonymous, if you like, or identical with unconditional love. But but it can never, never, never be realized or accessed through intellect alone. Amen. And I'll come to that very important point. But there is a way of approaching and contacting this impersonal higher power of which each one of us and each speck of the cosmos is both an aspect and an instrument. So we are an aspect of that higher power and also an instrument and a channel, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. through. The intellect thing. Einstein, in his 1943 speech during the darkest days of World War II to a Jewish sem seminary in, in the US, he started off by saying, he started off by saying, our age is proud of man's intellectual achievement, but we should be very careful never to make the intellect our goal. The intellect has powerful muscles, as he said, but it has no personality. And he referred to these people who worship the intellect as the intellectual priests, the priests. Right. So intellect is indispensable, but it only takes you so far. Then you've got to let it go. So the right. truth, whatever you like to call it, the truth, the real in capital, it is not opposed to intellect. It is beyond intellect. The truth is not against intellect. It is above intellect. So that's what <laughs> sounds easy to say. So those are, that's the message. But how are you going to do that now? This is the practical bit. You always got to strike a balance, in my opinion, between the head and the heart, between the devotional and the intellectual. Excessive intellect goes to arrogance. Excessive heart goes to gullibility, you know, I believe anything I'm told. You right. need intellect to strip away the rust from the pure metal, so to speak. Then most importantly, and really, discard every bit of trash and trivia in your life. Mm. You wouldn't have a clean, beautiful home if you had waste paper baskets full of trash. If you fill your head with trash, how can these higher thoughts take root? 
And I'm thinking now of that stupid, trashy little book that sold 100,000 copies on day one. You know who I'm referring to. No, I don't. Prince Harry. I'm not sure. Prince Harry's book called oh. Spare sold oh, I, didn't, I didn't read it. I don't, I don't recommend you do. I just saw, you know, that excerpt. If you want to fill your mind with re, uh, uh, looking at other people's dirty washing hung out on the line and fill your life with trash and trivia, you won't access the higher realms of consciousness. By contrast, and I must say this, uh, King Charles, he wrote a beautiful book called Harmony, where mm. he's talking about his feeling for the planet, for nature, for farming, for animals. And just finally, well, the athletics coach can't do the running for you. The piano teacher can't do the practice for you. The writer can't do the thinking for the reader. <laughs> How you true know, is that? It has to be self-effort. Yes. There's a point that you shared there that I'd like to <laughs> sort of take a 90-degree angle on. Mm-hmm. You know, you describe the intellect as no personality and lots of muscles. Yeah, Einstein, yes. The intellect has powerful muscles, but it has no personality. That was Einstein's, yes, yes. Oh, okay, so uh, the, 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 the point is artificial intelligence is really pretty much pure intellect. It, yeah, doesn't, yeah. Have, it doesn't have any subjective moral values. And it, it, it has big muscles, you know. So my question to you is with, with this infusion of artificial intelligence becoming more and more dominant in our lives, and I'll give you an example. I don't know how this happened. My computer must have done an automatic update or something. I come to work one day. I start writing in, in my new book, and all of a sudden the computer's trying to finish all my sentences for me. And then it, and then it says, um, would you like continued help from AI? A little sign came up because it was the first time he used it. And, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? Now I've got AI and I know the AI technology isn't in my computer. It must be because I'm on the internet. So now yeah. it means every, every word I'm writing is being monitored by somebody else or something else. So it there's is. no privacy in that. But the question is, based on what we've just been talking about and the danger of the intellect in absence of the feeling or the heart and morality mm-hmm. and morality. Do you, do you have any considerations, thoughts or concerns with where we're going with all this superpowered mm-hmm. rationality? Yeah. I'm very happy for AI to complete a word. For example, if I write W D W E D N E, I'm happy for it to say Wednesday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. Thank you. Yeah. Nothing more. I, I think it's one of the most insidious trends nowadays, in my opinion. And in chapter, in volume two, chapter seven, are our brains wet computers? Are we lumbering robots? I've gone into this question of AI. And I've quoted from uh, the likes of Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose pointing out the dangers. In Einstein's terms, every great scientist's terms, it is purely a servant. 
But the servant needs a very, very wise master. Otherwise, uh, it can just proliferate out of control. And I see it as potentially degrading our creativity besides opening up people to more and more untruth and cheating. Yeah. Sad, eh? It's, it is sad. And, but one can see where it's coming from. It's this, it's a question of values. If your value, sense of value is the more technology, the greater, the more evolved we are, then let's have more technology. If your sense of values is compassion, generosity, self-mastery, then that doesn't figure at all. But because we are so mesmerized by technology, it's another toy. Yeah. And again, the great sage Bronton put it so beautifully that science used wisely will result in the physical release of man. Science misused will result in his downfall. Yes. Hi, everybody. Did you know that Symbiotica now has a new excellent plant-based protein for you? Symbiotica's plant-based protein is a scientifically backed protein powder that fuels your body with essential vitamins and minerals, whole food nutrients, and a full range of amino acids. It features three complete proteins, raw greens, fiber, pre- and probiotics, digestive enzymes, and adaptogenic mushrooms. Crafted with the highest quality of organic ingredients, Symbiotica's plant-based protein is made for all lifestyles and is trusted and used by the world's top athletes. This product is ideal for those living a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle or people like me that like to give their body a rest from flesh foods and detox once in a while while being able to still get enough protein to meet your needs even if you're athletic. For those of you wanting to deepen your meditation, enhance your subtle energy perception and voyances such as clairvoyance, try taking two to three weeks off of flesh foods and use Symbiotica's plant-based protein supplement, drink lots of clean water, sauna regularly, avoid recreational drugs, and you'll be amazed at what happens. You'll feel like you've been super tuned to great spirit in the cosmos and your body will love you too. Symbiotica's plant-based protein boosts energy and recovery, promotes gut health, and offers you 20 grams of protein per scoop. To get your Symbiotica plant-based protein, go to bit.ly forward slash symbiotica L number four D that's B I T dot L Y forward slash symbiotica L four D to get your discount. Use the promo code L four D 15 for 15% off. That may be case sensitive. So make it all caps. That's capital L number four capital D 15 for 15 off symbiotica's excellent plant-based protein powder. You know, a thought came to me based on a quote you gave earlier. AI, to me, as a metaphor, almost as a symbol for the fact that we've gotten so lazy, we're unwilling to dip our own hmm. feather in the inkwell. Hmm. We yeah, want it to. Work. We want. We want it to do the feather, do the dipping, and do the writing for us. And I've recently seen, for example, there's an AI system out there that can write an essay in a few seconds on anything. Yeah. 
And so, sure, college students are going to be using AI to pass examinations. And what I've seen, in the, you know, because I'm working with all sorts of elite athletes that, that get into biohacking, what I've seen is the more people use devices to do the things that they should be paying attention to themselves, the, the dumber they get and the more detached from their body they get. I, th I think, you know, I always say to them, what are you going to do one day when your battery runs out and you have no idea what your heart rate is because you've been relying on this gadget and you don't even know yourself? Yeah. And, you know, in the Steiner conception, this is the aromonic deception. It is. Steiner, Steiner was prophetic. Even in the 1920s, he, he wrote the book, uh, the, the Electric Doppelganger, I think it was. Yes, I've got book. it. I've read yeah, through it. Warning, warning about this misuse, and it's always misuse. Now, let me just, you know, always let's be rounded in our approach. AI has wonderful uses. Just one example in uh, looking at uh, corneal problems in the eye, because you can photograph microseconds to see changes, and AI can whip through those changes where if you're looking through, 20,000 bits of x-ray, you just wouldn't know. Wonderful use of AI. But when it's used as a substitute for your own creativity, you're just going to be a, a mechanism, a machine. So the great danger is not that robots become more human, it's that humans become robot-like. Yes, and, and that is exactly what the World Economic Forum is really driving for, isn't it? Oh, Oh, my goodness, yes. The World Economic Forum, don't talk about it. There was a beautiful letter by, I forget his name, Sir Alistair, someone, talking about, you know, how disconnected they are. They will, as he said, they prostrate themselves like naughty school children in front of Greta Thunberg. And then they will go home in their limousines and their private jets. Right. And the, the one exception to their hypocrisy, inverted commas, is don't blame China. Whatever <laughs> cutlery and human, inhuman uh, behavior, don't blame China. So that's the hypocrisy within hypocrisy. Yeah, World Economic Forum. And it was Yuri... Uh, Hari, oh, Yuval, wasn't it? Yuval. Y Yuval Harari, yeah. Yuval Harari, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, I always yeah, get yeah. it screwed up too. <laughs> yeah, Yuval Harari. Oh, yes, his famous saying at the 2021, I think, forum was, we no longer are mysterious souls. We have got to realize that we are hackable animals. That's yes. what we are. But there's a slight bit of fuzzy logic there. If we are no longer mysterious souls, means we once were. <laughs> exactly, and there, and as he said, there's there's no need for God. There's no need for a soul. Those concepts are outdated, and they're not even true. Is his paraphrasing his language? But I remind people that Jung said, for something to be rejected, it must first be real. Yeah, in the first place, you can't rob a, rob an empty house. Right. <laughs> So, yes. uh, you know, the sad part for me is that most people aren't evolved enough in their own philosophical or spiritual depth to really understand exactly what this guy's saying. You know, it's like a good example of this is 
I remember watching years ago the TED Talk when Bill Gates got up in front of the audience and in front of countless people said, we're going to use vaccines to reduce the population. And not a single person even flinched or paid attention to the fact that he basically just said, we'll use vaccination, vaccinations to kill you. And they just did, they just looked at him like, oh, yes, daddy. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Reduce the population equals kill people. Yes. And, and you just have to look over the last year and a half to see proof. Absolutely. And the, and the concept of a vaccination is to save you from death. So here he is again, flipping everything. And I'm watching people like sheep staring into the headlights of an oncoming train, not even knowing yeah. what he's saying to them. And, and then they rush off to do it. I'm like, okay, we got a serious problem here. Everyone needs to wake up. And that's one of the reasons I think your, your consciousness series is so good. And your rate, you know, like you said, the, the rope and the snake's quite deep. So is this, but snake and the rope. <laughs> snake, yeah, the snake and the rope. Yeah. I got those paradoxes going. Yeah. But uh, but you know, I think I think this really boils down to what we're talking about really boils down to a fundamental dysfunction in education, not only in the education systems, but in spirituality, religion, and, and metaphysics, because in it's our sense of values. You see, yeah. if I got up and said that, they would say, oh, you stupid idiot, you know, lock him away and throw the keys away. But That's Bill exactly Gates, right. Bill Gates, money, you know, what? I mean, Bill Gates is, I wish he'd just stick to computers and not. <laughs> well, he couldn't keep viruses out of them either. No, no, he couldn't. And that's a disgrace. The The Apple Mac does a far better job. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. In the epilogue to volume three, I, I write quite heavily on the the way people are floundering, trying to find some meaning to their lives and turning to lewd and cheap entertainment or drugs or casual sex and all of that. The sense of values is what needs to be addressed. Yes. Many, many years ago, I was in the uh, London Underground and two businessmen were talking and uh, a Stradivarius violin had been auctioned. And all they were doing was talking about the price were 400,000 for this and no understanding of value. Price and value are quite different because our sense of values is driven by the millionaires, the billionaires, and the celebrities. Coming back to the story of Leopold Summers in the concentration camp, his sense of values was spot on. Yes. One of the things that I think, this is my own conception, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I feel that values are essential because they direct our intention and our flow and the flow of consciousness. You know, if our value is, you know, to support each other and to work co cooperatively together, then our intention is directed because it's following the implication of the value. So the, the value is like a weather vane that tells you which direction the wind's blowing. And so the wind here would be consciousness. And so if our values are distorted, then our consciousness illuminates the distortion instead of the harmony and the truth that, that underlies that, it. That's beautifully put, Paul. 
I really like the, the metaphor, and it's more than that, of the weather vane. In uh, rather more in simple mathematical terms, it's the difference between a scalar quantity and a vector. A vector is movement in a certain direction, but the scalar would be your consciousness. But to move in a certain direction, it has to be a vector, and that's where values come in. Yes, so the, the ocean is like the scalar quality, yeah. and the value is the pilot steering the ship to a destination that's best for all instead of hitting the rocks in the name of selling insurance. <laughs> good one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very good. Selling insurance, very good. Perfect. I was listening to a, a man that was just genius talking on uh, Del Bigtree. I wish I could remember his name. Just genius and um oh what was i going to tell you that he said oh it slipped out of my mind if i remember he he said something that, that about values hit. and hitting the rocks yeah it was oh i forgot what he said it'll if it comes back to me i'll i'll share it with you but i was so busy trying to look for his name on my notepads here that i've lost my thought but it'll come back you know one of the things though is i get the impression that the that you feel the central message that the is that the universe and man are guided by intelligence at all yes. levels. Yeah. Yes. You know, and I think but I think purpose, that's purposeful intelligence. Yeah, and I think you know, there's there's a that that kind of you know, there's the whole creationist camp and and intelligent hmm. design, and then there's people that oppose that. I I I think I think that there's, I think if you really sit with the arguments, I think. As often, they each have pieces of the puzzle, but they don't have the whole puzzle. How would you express it? Sorry, Paul, just to rephrase that, express what? You mean, how would I put the puzzle together? Well, yeah, you know, it, it seems to me that your books are, are teaching us that there is intelligence at all levels. Right. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I believe there is. I just think that because we have an ego and we're highly programmable, that the ego becomes a form of artificial intelligence that departs from the very intelligence that gave birth to it, which is the soul. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, you're, yes, you're talking of removing the ego blocks. And it's very important uh, to my mind, Paul, never to knock the ego, but always knock it yeah. when it's trying to become the master. Because to live on this earth, we need the ego. The ego is like the horse the, or that pulls the chariot, but the horse needs the chariot, the chariot needs the charioteer. So the ego, when it's used as a servant of the higher self, that's great. But putting the pieces together, this is exactly what the perennial philosophy does. And the Sanskrit word is sutratma, and sutratma means the sacred thread that binds. Right. So another way of looking at it, which is very useful, is like an algebraic formula. Now, the simplest formula I learned, we all learned at school, is distance traveled equals speed times time. Now, whether you're on the moon or Mars or on Earth, if you travel at 10 miles an hour for one hour, you 
travel 10 miles or wherever you are. So an algebraic formula is a statement of universals. So the perennial philosophy is like that algebraic formula that states the universals, which and the details are infinite, of course. But once you've got some idea of the formula, you can see how the series emanates from the formula. Right. One of the things I was going to discuss with you is, and I want to preface this, Mm -hmm. one of the things that's been really sad for me, and I've had this happen in several of my workshops and classes, and it's gotten worse and worse. I will be talking about how the nature of God is love and how the best way to experience God is to bring your awareness to love and to your heart. And so many times, especially young people say, I don't know how to feel love. I don't really know what love is. I don't think I've ever experienced love. And it's just... It's an amazing thing. I mean, I'm talking about 20, 25-year-old, even 30-year-old people who have reached this point because they've come become so numb with all the chaos in the world and so much lack of knowing and, and lack of elders to guide them and ground them. And, Paul, overstimulation from social media. Right. Excessive bombardment of the senses. Yes. You Which can't Steiner know. called supersaturation. Yeah. If there's no space in your life, in your heart, where can love flow? We can't flow in. It's like a traffic jam. Have those people you mentioned come from, if I may ask, broken homes or? Oh, almost always. Yes, broken homes. um, Yeah. A lot of academic pressure, uh, a lot of being railroaded into doing what their parents wanted them to do because they were told that. What they wanted to do would never make them any money. Um, yes. Also, very frequently brought up in very dogmatic religions, such as Jehovah's Witness, Catholicism, oh, and various yeah. forms. Yeah, that, that you know, says it all. Lots yes. of lots of laws and, and whippings and rules oh and hell mm. and damnation if you do this or do that. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, it's. It's sad, but I've noticed it's getting worse and worse and worse. And look at the rate of suicide rising up in young Definitely. people. It's crazy. You know? And it, that is a very good indication. And I've always noticed in England the suicides increase dramatically on the railways when the seasons change, when the light goes from dark to sun. light or the other way. So... so you know, if you see, if science provided all the answers, and you hear scientists from the Royal Society, believe you me, I've heard them saying it, say, well, science has all the answers. Well, if we were f- just physical beings, then physical science would provide all the answers. Yeah? Right. We're yes. Using the same material for the job. But because we are not just physical beings, to use mere physical means for what is transcendent is not going to work. So here you have proof that science does not provide all the answers. 
So then people say psychology. Well, yeah, but psychology, a lot of it is highly materialistic. Highly materialistic. Especially behavioral psychology. Oh, gosh, yeah. And again, I said, it makes me really sad that the what the great scientists have realized is not filtered through. What the great psychologists have realized is not filtered through. And I can think of no better example than William James. And he talked about the, the three functions of the brain, you know, productive, permissive, and most important, filtering. But then the great psychologist or the great scientist always turns to the great poet. And William James, he quotes from Shelley and Shelley's beautiful uh, two lines that life, like a dome of many colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity. Yes, very powerful. But how beautifully the poet encapsulates the, the, the true wisdom in beautiful language. But life is like the white light. The dome of many colored glass is the complexes and our brain structures and the inhibitions and obstructions we put. So we break up that white light into a whole stream of colors that range from dark to bright, from depression to joy to boredom to, you know, all these mm -hmm. things we experience. But when, until psychology raises its game and doesn't try to be scientific, we'll still be stuck with the same problem. And then it'll be drugs or a bit of this or a bit of that, you know, or blame your parents or blame your dreams. <laughs> yes. So the, the, I guess what I'm hoping to get some input from you on is if the universe is guided by love, what suggestions, and also, of course, love is God, what, what suggestions do you have for people that may have a disdain for religion that might be, you know, legitimate because of the experiences they've had? Or but they can do other things. Yeah, they might think of spirituality as too airy-fairy, and, and maybe they know that materialism is not right because they love their dog and they know it's not a machine. Um, what suggestions do you have for people in their own sanctum of their inner self or in their life in general to find this sense of love as the guiding principle yeah. or intelligence, you know? You mentioned their dog. I, 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 the first thing that came to my mind is um, get yourself a pet. Yeah. You know, yeah. But okay, if you don't, again, you, you always have to approach it from your temperament for where you are. So um, I would say try and expose yourself to devotional literature without calling it devotional literature. Try and read. Don't do that all day with your iPhone, read some of the great classics. And most importantly, just go out into nature. And nature is a great healer. So uh, coming back to what I said, filling your mind with trash, try and expose yourself to the best quality mental food through your eyes and through your ears. The company you keep, of course, is vital. <laughs> yes. 
and even the food that you eat, because if you the food you eat is absolutely vital. I only eat uh, organic, veg vegetarian, and uh, you know, fish occasionally. Food is vital because there is a, a vibration and a life force. I'm yes. very glad you mentioned food. I'm very glad you mentioned food. It's vital. Yes, and. And for me, I always begin my meal by connecting my heart to the food and thanking the spirit of the food for joining me in body, mind, and spirit. And I say, together, we can make the world a better place for all living beings now and in the future. And that's my commitment, that the sacrifice that the food has given me, the plants or the animals, uh, to me, my conception is they're not dying. They're joining me, and they're becoming human. And I'm saying to those spirits, you're joining me now so that together we can work and I can use your life force, your intelligence, your energy, and your gift yeah, to try to make, creators. A, yeah, to make the world a better place for all living beings. I think, you know, Steiner said there's nothing wrong with killing something as long as you're going to do something better with it. Yeah, In other words, yeah. he was saying we don't need more parking lots, but if you're going to build a school for kids or a, a, a dwelling where you're going to live and, and enjoy life, and use that space for something that adds more life to life. That's one thing. But if you're going to just build more cheap widgets that we don't need and toy pl plaster the world with plastic and garbage, then that's that's not an effective trade of life. No, it isn't. It's it's scattering cosmic energy, if I can put it that way. That's one way to put it. Rather than uh, conserving uh, the energy of the universe. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to tell you about Organifi Gold Chocolate, something that is very tasty and that my kids love. Organifi Gold Chocolate is a superfood hot chocolate healthy enough to drink every day. In fact, multiple times a day if you want. In fact, unlike most chocolate drinks that stimulate you and may disrupt your sleep if consumed after about four in the afternoon, my kids drink it right before bed. And unlike chocolate in general, it actually helps them sleep. Organifi Gold Chocolate doesn't include blood sugar spiking ingredients like other hot chocolate alternatives, leaving you feeling good about indulging in this healthy chocolate beverage. It was formulated to deliver the same amazing benefits as Organifi Gold. Some of the key benefits of Organifi Chocolate Gold, or gold chocolate, is that it has 10 superfoods for rest and relaxation. 100% USD organic certified, tastes delicious in warm water and amazing with milk or milk alternatives, promotes and supports relaxation so you can fall asleep with ease, supports a better night's rest so you wake up refreshed, and promotes a healthier response to stress and gives calming support. As you know, what most people reach for when they want something super tasty and enjoyable is generally not healthy, but that's not the case with Organifi Gold Chocolate, which is USDA certified organic, certified gluten-free, and certified glyphosate residue-free, which is very important, dairy-free, which is great for guys like me, soya-free, which is very important, vegan, non-GMO, and clinically proven ingredients, 100% organic whole food, which means... It's great for everyone. Save 20% on your purchase of Organifi Gold Chocolate by using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. That's check 20 on checkout. Go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash check 20. And again, for your 20% Living 4D discount, use the code check 20 in all caps. Enjoy Organifi Gold Chocolate. 
our next heading to talk about, we've been talking about it, but our next section is, is on religion. Mm. Um, I've got a couple of questions looped together here. So the first is, what do you feel the actual function of religion is? And I share this in preface to asking you this question. Why is the concept of God important, so persistent in man? And how much of an influence does our beliefs about God influence how we relate to ourselves, others, and ultimately the world? So what is the function of religion? And why is the concept of God so important and so persistent in man? Yeah, yeah. Well, firstly, let's unpack the word religion. Re ligare, meaning to bind back. Ligare as in ligature or ligament. Connector. Now, connector. Now, I, I was dwelling on this, that anything that is so powerful and uniting a force when misuse will divide and cause chaos. Now, you can either bind yourself, so the word bind has a, a double meaning. You can be bound, meaning imprisoned. So when religion with a small r, it, it's, it just binds you to your ego, and then you get the, the fights and the, the wars and all the rest of it. But when it's really gare, you bind back. You're binding the, the personal to the divine source. So in the widest sense, the purpose, as the word suggests, is this sort of leading man back to his own source. And it tries to provide the means to enable man to do this. In the broadest terms, philosophy provides the grand plan being very, very simplistic. Religion shows the path, many paths, <laughs> and science shows the method. That's beautiful. Yeah. If you've been shown the path up Mount Everest, it's not good enough. At least you know there's a path there. But how do you do it? So you need a method as well. So um, the, the function of religion is to lead man back to, to, to unite him with his source. But in order to do that, it has to give a clear definition of our relation with the source or the creator and make a definite statement about our goals. Now, your other point was, why is the concept of religion so important? The most materialist atheist has a religion. <laughs> It could be completely nihilistic, but he has a religion which is materialistic. Every human being wants to relate to some higher purpose or higher source, however he sees it. And even sport is now becoming a religion. Sure it is. Now, take football. I mean, a wonderful sport. But football hooliganism. Now, how does that start? If my team loses and your team wins, we bash each other up. Now isn't, now, isn't that the same as my God is not the same as your God? So we'll fight, have a religious war, Hindu and Muslim or Christian and whatever. So, so when a person um, identifies with something which he believes will take him, to a better place, 
and it only stays at the level of a concept, then you get the problems. But every person has a religion. Because man, by man I mean human beings, of course, is basically a religious creature. Scientism has become a religion. Transhumanism is becoming is being called. There's a paper out. It's the religion of the of the modern era. But you know, leaving aside transhumanism, happy to talk about it. It's trying to say, do this, and you'll be better. Believe me, and you'll be better. Accept what I'm saying. Blind faith. Don't question it. Orthodoxy. Trust me, and you'll improve. It has all the hallmarks of religion with a small r. Religion yes. that binds does yes. not bind back. Right. It binds you too, but not back to your yeah. source. Yes. It, exactly. You know, re- re- religion is really, in my opinion, as a as a, a, a metaphor, a practice of a practice that's in the temporal that brings you back to the eternal within yourself and within life itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are people, you know, who say religion should be banned. Well, and I would say, yes, okay. But if you want to ban religion, then be honest with yourself. Ban everything that has come from religion. Ban everything that has been the fruit of religion. Everything mechanical, based on Newton's laws. Newton openly said to uh, Richard Bentley in his wonderful letters that his whole purpose in writing Principia was, as he said, to demonstrate the power and and superintendency of a supreme being. Right. So if you don't want religion, ban everything that comes. Never go to a concert or at least from Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart, they were deeply religious people. If you can't do that, then you're not being honest with yourself in your saying, I want to ban religion. What you should be banning, or you never, you can never ban, you can educate. What you can educate people to is to discard orthodoxy and try and discern the universal. Yeah. You know, part of the part of the question and what I'm wanting to to pull out of you a little bit here is I'll rephrase it slightly. Jung in his speaking of archetypes said that the Imago Dei archetype, image of deity, is the archetype from which all archetypes emerge. And he says it's impossible to determine if it's if your beliefs about God create you or you create them. Or create them, yeah. That reminds me of uh, of the Chinese, the uh, Huang Tzu, I think, who, who dreamt, woke up and he thought, was I dreaming of a butterfly or was the butterfly dreaming uh, I was a man, you know? Right. Yeah. So the, 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 que- the question I'm trying to, 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 to get to so I can hear your conception of it is, how do you, how much of an impact do you feel that one's beliefs about God or or non God impact the rest of their entire belief system, philosophy, or way of seeing the world? Beliefs are of huge significance 
but not importance. And this is the difference. Beliefs are central. They're very significant. But once you make them important, you're, you're going to run into trouble because belief means you've formed a mental concept, a map. Right. And as we said, maps are very useful. You, you couldn't, well, you'd, you'd be daring to start mountaineering without a map. But, you know, if you, you, if you argue over the map, you're not going to be climbing the mountain. Right. And, and, and that's part of what's problem. Uh, the problem today is because you talk about sports becoming a religion, but sp sports are becoming a, a spectator sport. We have all yes. these, we have all these reality TV shows. And I keep telling people, look, you got to shut that off. Life is a, is not a spectator sport. It's a participation sport. Yeah, that's right. And it's as though all this media is pulling us into this passive observation yet people walk away from these passive observations thinking that they have objective facts in their mind and are making decisions from no place of actual experience, which I think is one of the most dangerous things in the world right now. Yes, virtual reality is one of the most dangerous things, and it's all connected with uh, artificial intelligence as well. Yeah. But you're talking of uh, Jung again. Um, any process goes through three principal stages. We can break it down, of course. Firstly, ideation, then the archetype or the paradigm, and then the construction. So whether you're building the channel tunnel or whether you're building a universe, it has to start with thought, with ideation. Right. But then you don't go from thought to digging the ground with spades. You have to have a plan, and then you have to flesh out the plan with activity. Yes, very true. I'm just writing a note. When you drop these gems, I got to record them. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that way I can meditate on them. How far do you feel religion has deviated from what it was intended to be? Tremendously, Paul. Tremendously. I feel it has got immersed in or sort of stuck in grooves rather than being the uniting force it's become the dividing force with obviously with great exceptions but it always amuses me Paul that you know you've come across the Plymouth Brethren I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from I mean Ve just vaguely religion. yeah I'll tell you the Western religions are more prone to fighting and disagreement than the Eastern religions because the Eastern Absolutely. religions bring philosophy in. But anyway, the Plymouth Brethren uh, um, formed in the 19th century. The idea was to take the Bible literally, literal interpretations. But then what happened? They started arguing about what's literal and what's more literal. That's the, the argument started. But even more so than that, I'll tell you from personal experience where I live, uh, there, uh, there were a couple of houses belonging to the Plymouth Brethren, very polite people, very personable. I invited my neighbour when I moved in, well, have a cup of tea, I'd like to meet you. No, we're not allowed to go to other people's homes. Really? Didn't Christ say, love thy neighbor like thyself? Yes. 
What about your literal interpretation? Even more so, I mean, you, you, you see how desperate this gets. They don't, they discourage going to a solicitor for any transaction because you've lost faith in the second coming. But what's wrong with the first coming? The second coming is only going to say the same thing in different language. Yeah, <laughs> good point. And then, then this is the thing that gets me. Oh, you would take the Bible literally, but we cherry pick what we take. Did not Jesus say, in my father's house are many mansions? If that were not so, I would not say so. Did not Krishna say to Arjuna, by whatever path a man comes to me, I am there waiting for him. Right. So Jesus is openly advocating, well, many parts, many mansions. But that, oh no, they don't take that literally, do they? Right, no. So we don't love our, we love our neighbor like ourselves, but we don't have tea with him. <laughs> right. So you see, you see the, the, the sickness, the sheer sickness, I can only call it a sickness, of lack of education in allegory, in symbolism, and the true purpose of religion, rather than a dogmatic, thou shalt do this, or you're a sinner. And one of your questions was, wasn't it, what, what happens, what, what, uh, what are the signs when one's religion becomes unhealthy? Yes, I, I would love to hear the answer to that. Intolerant behavior, obviously leading to violence, sectarian values, neurotic and obsessional behavior, and also it degenerates into food fads, meaningless superstitions, um, excluding all people except your own type. Yeah, and that's exactly what's going on right now. Yeah. And that brings up a question too, and, and having studied Gnosticism and how the Gnostics shared their experiences with each other, they would gather around a campfire and instead of having any dogma, one might say, I might say, well, you know, I was doing this type of meditation and all of a sudden I had this experience of being transported to a different dimension and I interacted with higher spiritual beings and somebody would say, well, oh, well, let's practice. Let's, let's try it. Yeah. And so it was really just an open sharing of what worked for each person to have a unique experience and an invitation to say, would you like to try it? So the question is, how would the world change if we went from reading books and being told by imaginary father figures what we must believe and do to really engaging more of a Gnostic approach to spiritual or religious development? Well, there would certainly be a lot more philanthropy, a lot more altruism, of course, but also there would be intelligent dialogue with science. Right. Which, and, and, and with science and philosophy, of course. So there would be this intelligent dialogue with science. That's a good idea. Besides philosophy, of course. Now that we have scientific, scientism, scientific materialism, and transhumanism all becoming comparable to a dogmatic religion, what warnings might you want to share with people 
and what signs and symptoms might you want to share with them to indicate what's actually happening for those that don't realize that they're, you know, because these things are like fungal infections. You don't know you have it until it's so heavy that you're, that you're already almost dead, you know? Um, and I'm worried that these yeah, things. Paul, I'm, I'm making a note of your golden nuggets. Uh, you, you've said some beautiful things. I like fungal infections. It is a, a, a fungal infection, a viral infection. You say, what are the warning signs? Well, an excessive reliance on technology. Yes. An excessive belief. On, in the ego, that I can do whatever I like, given the right technology. There would be, hypothetically, of course, far more self-centeredness. There would be a tremendous arrogance towards all other approaches. These and would to be, life itself. To, yeah, yeah, these would be the sort of warning signs. <clears throat> Sounds like something that's very heavy and happening right in front of us, doesn't it? Yeah. And the other thing you hear is spiritual but not religious. <laughs> uh, that's another oxymoron or, you know, you can't square that circle. Right. Because when people <laughs> say, I'm spiritual but not religious, obviously they're reacting against the dogmatic yeah. orthodox. But to say spiritual without religious, well, you might as well say, I love music, but I don't want to hear music. Uh, I love mathematics, but don't teach me arithmetic. I want to hear all about general relativity, but don't teach me calculus. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Eddie, what do you think happens when politics uses religion to its own <laughs> aims? And what you happens have- when it when it avails itself to political motives and how big of a concern yeah, well, is that? We're seeing enough of that, aren't we? Uh, um, when politics gets hold of religion, it's using religion as a controlling means and a way of injecting fear that I, the politician, am telling you to do this because God... We'll punish you if you don't. I'm being very simplistic here. Right. It, it's dreadful when politics gets hold of religion and um, also the other way around. But it's incredible how politics gets in the way of just about anything. And I'm thinking this is slightly tangential. Beethoven's approach to God was universal. You know, people still argue, well, argue is a strong word, but discuss what was Beethoven's religion in his Missa Solemnis when his, his titanic work where um, he said, from the heart made reach other hearts. And he wrote Beethoven that my purpose in writing the work was to evoke religious feelings, not only in the musicians, but you know, in the, in the public. So what was Beethoven's religion? The point was it was a universal religion. Right. And Beethoven wrote in his notebooks from the Eastern scriptures. And I can, uh, I'll send you that. Beethoven transcribed passages from the Eastern scriptures. But 
Um, but why am I saying this? Now, uh, the 200th anniversary of Beethoven's birth, um, there was a, a great, a great celebration, and I attended a lecture where this professor from East Germany was spent an hour trying to tell us that Beethoven's principles were really communist. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so politics can twist and turn just about anything it gets its dirty little hands on. Yes, sadly. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because having studied quantum physics quite a lot, um, I know for a fact that Schrodinger, Wolfgang Pauli, Niels Bohr, and Einstein all were studying Eastern religions. And yes, not and only were they most of all. Yeah, not only were they studying them, but they were getting answers to questions that they could yes. not solve and then got open to the possibility, which helped them further science. Absolutely. 1,000% yes, Paul. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people need to know that because a lot of these materialists don't realize that the greatest scientists that ever lived were, in essence, deeply interested in the religious and spiritual aspects of human existence and what mystics had found. And, and you know, I think it was uh, John Wheeler. No, it was, uh, f it was either John Wheeler or Fred Hoyle. I can't remember, but might have been. Uh, yeah, I think it was John Wheeler. Mm -hmm. said, any day now I expect to find a Rishi sitting at the end of one of my mathematical equations. I wish that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, here's the funny thing. It did happen, but people didn't yeah. get it. Yeah, it, it did happen, Paul, but people didn't notice him. Right, and I'm going to give you an example. I remember the day... Stephen Hawking's announced on television that he had mathematically calculated that the sum total of the universe was zero, therefore there is no need for God. And I huh. said, well, What's Mr. Hawking's, I said, I'm saying to myself, here's Stephen Hawking's, one of the smartest scientists on the planet, who doesn't realize that a mathematical symbol for unconditional love is zero. Is zero, exactly. The, so yeah, you found yeah. God and you didn't even see it. I'm like, oh, my God. That's the disconnect between the head and the heart. And the left and the right brain. And the left and the right brain, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, politics using religion controlled by blind obedience, you know, be punished by God, and religion using politics again, power struggles and manipulation. Exactly. Hi everybody, you know when I first tried Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes, I had a noticeable increase in energy and an improved sense of stability in my body. This really surprised me because I did not suspect that I needed electrolytes. My wife, Penny, has been drinking a glass in the evening, eliminating the cramps she had been getting at night in her calves and has been getting a more restful, uninterrupted sleep. Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes come in three flavors, orange, lemon lime, and watermelon. Electrolytes improve electrical conductivity in our nervous system, improve our capacity to retain water, 
support us with essential minerals and trace minerals, supporting the regulation of our hormonal system, body systems, and helping with overall well-being. For athletes that train hard and get a good sweat, Paleo Valley's electrolytes can be the difference between a great workout and an average workout. The difference between crossing the finish line first or looking at butts and heels as you cross it. A combination of electrolytes and water was found to be most effective at preventing increased anxiety, fatigue, and headaches. Migraines and headaches in general can result from dehydration, low calcium and or magnesium, trace mineral deficiencies, and hormonal imbalances. So why resort to drugs and painkillers that ultimately do nothing to address the common causes of headache when you can drink Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes and support your body in many ways at the same time? And you can reduce or eliminate sugar cravings that often result from a lack of sodium while giving your body a wide variety of minerals and trace minerals to support it. Most electrolytes offered on the market use synthetic isolated nutrients that do not contain the full spectrum of compounds found in organic whole foods. Paleo Valley's Essential Electrolytes contains ancient unprocessed sea salt with dozens of minerals and over 60 trace minerals your body needs. You will also enjoy the pure organic coconut powder and the refreshing flavor and essential potassium it provides. Together, this is a perfect balance of ingredients that will not only give you improved capacity for exercise, better hydration, and reduced chances of unwanted headaches, muscle cramping, and premature fatigue, but will support your body with the essential minerals and trace minerals that help keep you balanced and in a state of well-being. Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes are also third-party tested to ensure purity in all ingredients. To get your essential electrolytes now, go to paleovalley.com, that's P-A-L-E-O, valley.com and save 15% on your purchase using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15. That's check in all caps, 15. Check 15 on checkout. My family and I use Paleo Valley's excellent products every day and love them, and I'm very confident you will too. So Eddie, you wanted to share a little bit about, you know, how do we break free from this you know, dogmatic addiction to religious ideals and, um, oh, ideology. I think, yeah, yeah mm. religious ideology, you know, I, I think from studying how consciousness evolves, it starts off as ethnocentric or I centric, my people, my group to, um, first it's, it's I centered to we centered. Then it goes to, so once you get out of your religious ideology, I'm a Christian or I'm a Buddhist or Muslim, then it goes to world centric. So we start to look into each other's beliefs and, and it, I think it causes a flowering effect. Um, what, what do you think is important in that regard? Flowering is the most important word. As children, it's always my mummy, my daddy, my friends. But then when you grow up, you realize other people have mummies and daddies as well, not only me. And then I live in this city, but other people live in cities, and we expand our, our horizons. If you have the privilege of a bit of travel, you, you, you expose yourself to other cultures right, and, uh, and, and other religions and other customs. But by... Um, by studying comparative religion, you see the uh, thread, uh, the the common thread, and the 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 uniting fight uh, factor rather, and you realize that the arguments 
are really over small differences and we tend to miss the bigger picture. Yes, and that 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 means to miss the bigger picture. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's um you know, if if a person reads poetry as prose, they're going to miss the bigger picture. Of course, that's well put. I think that, you know, our education systems take the poetry out of poetry and and there's a reason that the great mystics of the world communicated a lot of their teachings in poetry for for that reason and and it also exactly. the nice thing about poetry is you know like you can take a roomy poem and give it to a hundred people and get a hundred completely different interpretations because it strikes each of them in a unique way I think I think that's really what religion's supposed to do. We're not supposed to herd people into uh, groups of sheep and have them memorize things so they pass a test on memorization, which turns you into a, a computer. Yeah, we're we're supposed to ha have this poetic experience, and I think for me, when I speak to people like yourself and people that have you know really worked to develop an intimate relationship with God, not just memorize ideas is that i always love seeing how the poetry of it all rises in their soul and like i've learned a ton reading your books even on topics that i thought i had a lot of knowledge on i'm like wow that's an approach i never even thought of right so so really for me it's like i'm getting to engage the poetry of eddie himself through his writings and, and also through talking with you, which is even more fun than reading books. But, you know, even though the concept of the prism divides the light, the material prism only divides it into seven colors, but humanity is divided into you know, <laughs> eight billion colors. And so it's almost like we start excluding pieces of the rainbow when we say, oh, your religion's wrong or, you're, you know, I don't believe in God or any of that kind of stuff. And, and we, we, we are, we're like now an isolated color that's lonely out there and don't realize what we've done to ourselves. It, it seems to me we need to, we, we got to take it down into our heart and start feeling it instead of analyzing it. Poetry brings things down into the heart. Yeah. Po poetry evokes the devotional side. And, you know, the great, John Keats, but it's so beautifully poets, are the legislators of humanity because they will see what humanity needs to be doing and where humanity is going by virtue of their sensitivity and their connection with the source. So poetry, music, they all bypass the left-brain critical critic mind and objectivity and quantification is all very well and wonderful. But if you make that your sole objective, then you will take the poetry out of anything you read. So, you know, that, that lovely saying, the well-known saying, to see uh, the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower uh, you know, it's said often enough, but how many people really see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower? 
Not what enough. Saying, yeah, in many ways, you can look at it in many ways, but you can look at it as a hologram. Yes. That, you know, the whole universe is reflected in every particle, but not reflected so clearly in one particle as in another. You can look at it in another way that grains of sand are part of the mineral kingdom that are evolving towards the next stage of evolution. But poetry and parables stimulates the, the intuition. Yes. And that opens the door to the, yeah, you know, because Jung describes intuition by informing us that intuition is the only function of consciousness that can tell us the things that thinking, feeling, and sensation cannot give us. No, tuition from within. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, speaking of poetry in the heart, I was reading, uh, I read a, a very good book on how to develop your own myth, your own personal myth by, mm -hmm. uh, I believe it was, his first name is John Youngblut, Young, B-L-U-T. Oh, yeah. and. Yes. Um, it's an older book, but I, I read it a few months ago. Um, I was just called to it because part of my new work and my new book and program is to teach people how to create and become conscious of their own personal myth. Because ultimately, without consciousness of that, you're not aware of the polarities you're generating or how you're perceiving the world or how you're using the power of your own imagination and creative abilities to create what's happening in your life. But what he said in the book that I think was relevant to poetry in the heart is he says, only the heart can deliver justice to the mind. And I think that's such a powerful statement. Only the heart can deliver justice to the mind because the mind without the heart is artificial intelligence. Yes, well put. Oh, it's not the mind, it's the brain. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, I'm using yeah, it. Yeah, the, I know, that's just words. Yeah, but yes, you're right. I mean, so... Uh, in, you know, but even even though the brain is the brain, it still is the transformer of thoughts in into beliefs where we, you know, because without the brain, then we're immersed in the whole, which would be quite schizophrenic, right? It would, you'd be you'd be in too many dimensions at once. So as Aldous Huxley called the brain the reducing valve, it is indeed it is a reducing valve and a filter. Yeah. A filtration system. So it's a way the the invisible signals from the heart are made visible in the same way that your TV set will make the invisible signals from the broadcasting station visible so that you can see the tiger, even though the tiger is not in your TV. Right. <laughs> you yeah. Yeah. I, I think, though, what's so important that I want to um, – bring out of this comment that only the heart can deliver justice to the mind is because if justice becomes too rational and too logical, I'll give you a good example. In tarot, you have the emperor and the empress. And in my studies of tarot, it talks about how the emperor is very rational, very logical. He's, he's the king of the four elements, the exterior external world. But his tendency is to make judgments based on rationality alone. And the description is that it's his wife, the empress, who's more in touch with her heart and her feeling nature and the nurture of a mother. 
that comes to the emperor and says, wait a minute, before you have that guy's cut head cut off, do you realize that his child just died? His wife yeah, died. Yeah. He's suffering from severe depression. And he had no choice but to steal an apple because he was starving to death and he's too emotionally crippled to go to work. Whereas you were just using your left brain to make a right an intellectual judgment. Yeah. So she's like the heart, the empress, that brings the emperor into balance. And I think the a lot of things that lawyers do based on legalese and rationality yeah. are often dangerously overlooking the 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 elements of the story that can only be perceived by putting your heart into it yeah and then you can't because you can't see what's really going on if the heart's not involved yes and i think as we go more and more into scientific materialism we get more and more heartless and more and more left-brained and more and more caught in these blind alleys that sound good on paper but they don't actually produce justice absolutely go along with that I think what I'd like to close on today, because we're we've had a, a good run, and and um, I want to let people have time to digest this, and we can come back. Our next section that we'll get into in our next meeting together will be looking at science and looking at the relationship of science and consciousness, which I think will be a fascinating exploration. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I've studied quite a bit, and it really is a source of a lot of confusion and controversy and religious infighting, is the idea of Jesus as a man versus uh, Christ yeah. as a principle. Yes, yes. You know, and, and, and how Christianity turned Jesus from a man into a God and all the complexities of that. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that paradox and that kind of confusion. Yeah, I would just, I always say Jesus the Christ, not Jesus Christ, because Jesus, the man, the man, was Christed. So the Christos principle flowered in him. And Christ is exactly the same as Krishna. So it's the, it's the spiritual soul that flowered in the man Jesus. But to turn a man into a god is really an anthropomorphic exercise of turning god into a human concept right and and then you have the problem of not christianity but churchianity ah yes how good is that that's so true but yeah there's a lot of you're quite right uh, in fighting about uh, about that very thing i would say instead of putting all your eggs in one basket so Jesus is the only God, son of God, look to the other sons of God. Yes. Look at Ramana Maharshi. Look at the Buddha. Look at all the other great saints of any religion. They're all sons of God, meaning they have realized the divinity within them and lived entirely in accordance with that realization. Whereas we are unconsciously half realizing in our finer moments when we act unselfishly, and we all do, unless we are totally monstrous, we all have our finer refined moments. We are then glimpsing and acting according to that divine light. 
but we don't let it shine all the time. We, you know, it, it hits on a dimmer switch, unfortunately. And the, who controls the dimmer switch? The ego. So um, those who are permanently rooted in the divine self are Christed, Krishna, Buddha, Shankaracharya, Jesus, Ramana, all even of them. Lao Tzu. Most certainly, most certainly, and a great, great philosopher. Most certainly. Yes, I think it's important to. Uh, I think it's important to see the Christ principle as the equivalent of unconditional love. Yes. And by definition, a man can't be unconditional love because a man is an object, has a body, we can weigh it, measure it. There's a personality, there's an ego, there's a limitation. But the concept of, you know, in Charles Fillmore's metaphysical Bible dictionary, one of his dictionary definitions of the word Christ is one who has become united with the all. Yes. So the principle of Christ is actually the awareness of the immersion of and the experience of the unconditional love of God that is giving birth to all things that allow us to have an awareness of and an experience of life itself, which is the experience of love itself. And, you know, I went into deep meditation because I had a question that I couldn't find any answers to in books. And the question was, if God is unconditional love, then how did you get all these conditions? So I went into meditation and asked my soul, please connect me to God consciousness so I can ask a question. And I soul said, you're connected. And I, and I became <laughs> consciously connected. And I said, God, if you were unconditional love, then how did all these conditions get here? Why all the chaos, confusion, darkness, evil? And the answer that came back was, I created conditions so that I may love myself unconditionally. Yeah, and that's not playing with words. I, that's, uh, no, very, that's the fact. That, that's a very profound statement, yeah. So paradox, uh, to, to be comfortable with paradox is very important. Yes, Osho says if you can't handle a paradox, you'll never handle yeah, God. <laughs> Is is vital. It is absolutely vital. Yes, yes. Well, is there anything you'd like to share, Eddie, before we close our first enjoyable session today? I've had a lovely journey with you, and I'm I'm very excited to get into the science and all the other things we have outlined. Um, I just love to hear any closing thoughts that you might have. I would say, Paul. In order to realize your greatness, you first have to realize your littleness. Right. To rise to your greatness, which you will do, first be aware of how little you are. I understand that. Maybe you can share some more context for people because that is one of those paradoxical statements that I think a lot yeah. of people's <laughs> heads will just go into a gridlock on. Um, uh, certainly I could tell you what it means to me, and but I, I would like you to share it because it's your offering. Well, yes. In order to realize your greatness, you have to operate from your highest self, from the flowering of your being, from your highest center. 
but your little self is the bit that says, I'm the greatest. Look at me. Look how pretty I am. Look how clever I am. Look what I can tell you. So as long as that gets in the way, the greatness in, in you is having to fight through a dense fog. Right. So what I'm really saying is quieten the ego. Quieten yes. Ego. Use the ego. Use the ego, but don't let him shout. You know, one of the things I teach my students, I think you might find interesting to help them understand why they need to not put so much stock in the ego. Yes, it's important. And I could go on a long laundry list of reasons it's important. But the thing that I'm driving at here is I say, if I could use a supercomputer and download every idea that you have in your mind that you think is your own or of yourself, like your beliefs about sex, your beliefs about money, your beliefs about people of other races, colors, creeds, your beliefs about mathematics. Basically, your ego is really like the the locus of consciousness with which you organize and orient yourself to. Your sense of self is not truly the self, but it's really like a periscope of the self, like a submarine being the self. The ego is just like a little periscope having a little look around. But I say, if you could download that all into a supercomputer and then have the computer analyze how many of the ideas that are in the construct of your ego are actually of your own novel creation. Very few. Versus having been planted into you by other people. Yes. Most people agree. It probably wouldn't even be more than 2%. I say, so good. Next time you start thinking yourself to be this or that, don't forget that you're actually a construct that was largely built by other people's ideas until you come into a deeper relationship with that which is beyond ideas themselves. And when you do, you'll find out that the benefit of those ideas is that they created just enough problems for you to be in just enough pain to realize that you have problems in your life that that same construct cannot deal with. And that's the beginning of a legitimate spiritual relationship with God when you say, okay, I give up because this AI system that people programmed into me is too limited to get to the place to have the experiences of love that I want to have. And really, you know, the greatest that, of people have admitted that they've stood on the shoulders of giants. Yes. So to speak, that their inspiration is thanks to others who have inspired it through their minds. But um, there is that wonderful uh, play by T.S. Eliot where Lord Montresey says, I now realize that my mind has been a dream dreamt through my mind by the minds of others. Right. And he realizes this when his aunt in his baronial castle tells him that you know your father wanted to murder your mother but never had the courage to do so. It was a pent-up, never accomplished. So then the Lord says, now I know why I threw my wife overboard at sea on the ship. My life has been, my mind has been a dream, dreamt through my mind by the minds of others. So until we realize our conditioning, then our thoughts are a jumble 
of our own productions and other people's secondhand thoughts and a load of other things. And this is what meditation is about, to realize that conditioning. Yeah, to get apart from it. Yeah. get To get back so you can witness it and detach from it and, and see the, uh, the, you know, it's kind of like um, watching the story as a witness instead of being trapped in it, you know? Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Eddie. What well, a what a great a, exploration. A real pleasure and a, and a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, if people want to find more information about your books, your lectures, uh, anything you want to share to direct people, where 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 would you like to send people for more? Um. Oh gosh. Now you're asking me to talk about myself. <laughs> well, we need we need to if we want to learn from you, we got to find you. <laughs> right. Well, my website, of course, which I only created the uh, middle of last year, so that's one source. But honestly, um, Anne Kelly is a wonderful person, and she would provide uh, any information. She's a wonderful person. What is your website? Eddie Billy Moria, all one word. Dot com. Great. Thank you. What a fantastic journey, Eddie. I'm looking forward to Thank the you. next chance to continue. Thank you. I'll have Penny reach out and set it up. Thank you, all of you, for joining us. I hope you find these concepts, topics, and explorations as important and interesting as Eddie and I do, especially considering the things that are going on in the world today and all that we've discussed. Oh, if you think this podcast is important, please share it with the people that you feel could be receptive to this level of education and let's do all all do our best to make the world a better place each day and thank you to my sponsors for all your love and support and your amazing products thank to all of you who purchase any products from the sponsors that supports the podcast and i'm deeply grateful and i look forward to sharing more interesting love and information and amazing people with you next week talk to you soon Thank you, Paul. You have a wonderful orchestra. Ah, yeah, you too. I love, I love merging our instruments together. So lots of love, Eddie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dr. Eddie Billy Moria. You can follow Eddie on Instagram at Eddie Billy Moria, on Twitter at Eddie underscore Billy Moria, or visit his website at eddiebillymoria.com. That's E-D-I. B-I-L-I-M-O-R-I-A dot com. You can also find Eddie's Unfolding Consciousness book studies on YouTube at bit.ly forward slash three capital G O two capital L W seven. Eddie is offering Paul's listeners 20% discount off his four volume work, Unfolding Consciousness, which is one of Paul's favorite books at the moment. Go to bit.ly forward slash Eddie Billy Moria and use the code PaulCheck23. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash E-D-I-B-I-L-I-M-O-R-I-A and the code to use is PaulCheck23. You can find Paul on Instagram and TikTok at Paul.Check, on Twitter at PaulCheck or on his YouTube podcast channel YouTube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can also watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. 
You can read the show notes and find all the links to the resources and offers mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.